I don't have to get out of my comfort zone to be involved in a transaction. I know where my strength lies, and sometimes I'm not necessary in a transaction. From invitation into to fulfill, you need a positive, forward-thinking person that's going and really push what it is you want in that transaction. You don't want somebody like me in there because I'll cut it off. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview is with Lisa Batista, a senior faculty member at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, a leading chiropractic institution with an international reputation for excellence. Her extensive family originates from a Portuguese colony off the coast of China next to Hong Kong. Raised biculturally Portuguese and American, her grandparents' generation helped her family lineage survive the Japanese invasion of Hong Kong and immigrated to America. Now residing in New Zealand, she's overcome a lifetime of feeling she had to hide what she had considered her flaws, being introverted, analytical, or judgmental. Having embraced her transactional behavior as a judge personality, her flaws are now her strength, and she's become keenly aware of the resource, value, and role she offers a transaction. After the break, we'll hear more about personality and how each is so necessary to any value transaction. Here's the interview. Well, first of all, give us a picture of who you are, your role, and some of your current accomplishments. Sure. I've been a chiropractor now for 24 years, and I transferred myself to New Zealand in 2007, which was only supposed to be a two-year contract. It is now going to be 10 I changed within my profession as a practicing chiropractor into the educational field. It was the best move for me at the time, and I so enjoy education at the moment. I think my proudest moments are when my students have selected me as Faculty of the Year. I've had three awards in the last 10 years. For me, that's incredible, coming from a place of being introverted and afraid to speak in public and being able to use my knowledge to help them gain their knowledge. I met some of your students at a conference a couple of years back. They are fans of Lisa. For me, being that judge personality, usually you push people away, but they still keep coming towards me, so that's a pretty good thing. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the journey to discover your judge personality, as we call it. So for those unfamiliar with what we teach and personality and transactional behavior, there's four primary personalities that we study. There's an inventor, performer, producer, and judge. And the judges are the personality in the transaction that's often accountable for the assessment or the analysis of the transaction as a whole. 
And so oftentimes when people begin our programs, they either know they are that personality for sure, or they spend some time struggling to kind of figure out which one they might be. And I think you went through some of that, right? You were unsure of the personality that you might identify with and and have a revelation about that later, yeah? Yes, I did. I, I thought I was a performer to start with, but it actually made sense that I was performer trying to hide my judge personality. Once I realized and looked at the list and saw how much I stopped being that, it was the revelation was, wow. And how come? Because I didn't have to think that it was a bad part or a flaw of my personality or just being with people. Once I saw that it was a strength of mine, I became more likely to use it as a positive than use it as a negative, especially with my students. And what does it look like to use it as a positive with your students? I would have to say that the analytical side of me always judging them first or assessing whether they're right or wrong didn't allow me to be a good teacher. But when I started listening to them and assess from a different place, not in judgment, but in what they needed, I became a better teacher. And that was the biggest revelation that I wasn't actually being a very good teacher. I was being a very good judge. You can't be a good teacher when you're judging them. Well, let's come back to that in just a minute. I want to go to your early days, your childhood days. From what I remember in your notes, you said some things about some of your early struggles, the way that people perceived you or how you might have come across. What were some of those kinds of early struggles? I was called aloof many, many times growing up and standoffish. As I was learning as a child, I was told that I was stupid, dumb, and lazy because I was dyslexic and nobody knew until I was 28 years old. What I thought was being an introvert was more I was listening because I was an auditory learner and a tactile learner, kinesthetic. And if I'm always trying to listen, then I can't be related. It just made me feel like people didn't like me, people didn't want me around, pushing me away. And I just took it as, well, okay, I'll just stand stand and be a wallflower and just observe and, and watch people. I decided that I was a people watcher. It served a purpose for a while, but not until I became a chiropractor at 32 when I needed to be related to people. I really didn't know how. I didn't know how to engage. I didn't know how to create that first conversation. And it was a struggle for me to have that relatedness with people who I'm supposed to help. So in that regard, yeah, it was very, very difficult as that assessor and being dyslexic at the same time. And your journey includes a lot about how you compensated for what you assumed was a flaw. Can you say some things about that? Well, how I compensated was always being right, using that (laughs) assessment, (laughs) using that assessment to judge. And then when I would talk, it was only when I knew I was right. And it wasn't to, to make you wrong. It was just I felt more comfortable speaking when I was right. And... If I said something wrong, it just took me completely out. So, again, it took me into that conversation of being introverted. I also then used my athletic ability to compensate for that interaction because you couldn't take away my sports ability, my athletic ability, which then led me to believe I was a performer because I was so athletically inclined. So in my brain, it just kind of didn't work right. Things just didn't match. 
I thought I was really good at things, but when push comes to shove, I wasn't able to, to take that extra step and move forward to bigger and greater jobs or opportunities because if I wasn't right, they would find out and I would be that fraud. One of my dyslexic problems is reading. So if I can't read, I'll have an endpoint of my theory or my book smart. Hmm. That was the big fraud. <laughs> Understand. Well, you had become quite calculated or analytical in some ways. And it sounds as if you were playing it safe in some ways. And that stopped you from excelling financially. You sent me some notes about that. You said there was always some point that I would have to stop achieving because I knew I couldn't rise any higher to make more money. I wasn't book smart enough to apply for high-paying positions or run a financially sound business by myself. Anything about that you want to share? I only went for those things that I was able to look good at. If I wasn't going to look good, I didn't move myself forward. If you look at my resume, if you look at my CV, I've done so many things. However, it, it never really gave me that financial stability because it, mostly what I did was voluntary. Like as I was the president of the Hawaii Association, Chiropractic Association, I helped with a transformative seminar with women who had been trafficked in Nepal. I'm the, the council member in the New Zealand Chiropractic Board. So a lot of the things that I've done has been mostly volunteer where there was no reciprocation of money. And I think that was the easy part because I wasn't going to get paid for it. But when push comes to shove for jobs that were going to pay me high level, I, I didn't feel that I was book smart enough to be able to pull it off. So the performing part of me was covering the fraud, covering the getting caught, that I really wasn't as smart as people said I was. And giving me that ability to look at my personality type as the assessor and use it as my strength, I can now step up into positions that I never thought I would. I have more confidence in who I am and, and what I stand for and that I have so much to give and I should be compensated for that. The whole influence ecology, personality, transactional behavior type, it was like a gift of freedom. I've done a lot of different types of self-help work, but that personality type struck such a huge chord in who I am as a person that I was able to let all the armor down, the hard-assness, I guess you could say, <laughs> gone. <laughs> The judge wants you to succeed, and that's why they're so successful in what they do as an assessor. But because we come across as such hard asses, right or wrong, good and bad, that people don't really want us around because we're the, we're the joy killer. We're not going to let you not succeed, but we don't necessarily say it in the right way, and we're not the most cordial people sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we get pushed away. It's the combination of... Here, I want to give you everything, but you're going to push me away, so I'm going to really be calculated on when I'm going to say this. Let's talk about something here for a second, because as the guy who does an exit interview with most people who complete our, our basic program, we don't have a plan that everybody that starts the program finds themselves freer, <laughs> but it almost always happens. 
the commitment that we have is to teach transactional competence. That means that you can understand the biological tendency to transact in a particular kind of way. That means that you approach life in a particular kind of way. You want to offer something that's analytical as opposed to ideas or relationshiping and so forth. And so each one of the personalities tends to, in this program, say something like, I stopped trying to be like the other personalities. I found myself free to be just me in the transactions in which I'm engaged and things like that. In your own opinion, why do you think that that freedom comes with understanding that? If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. Well, for me, I don't have to be the other personalities. I, I don't have to perform. I don't have to get out of my comfort zone to be involved in a transaction. I know where my strength lies, and sometimes I'm not necessary in a transaction. I've really learned to shut my mouth and listen. And when I do have to say something, I really have to pay attention to what comes out of my mouth. So I'm more calculated in how I present, how I speak, the words that I use, even my whole body language. It takes away from the judge personality, that stoic look. Prior to that, I was just always stoic. I had no emotion and you, you never saw me smile because I was always constantly listening. But now as I'm working in the transaction, I can, if I need to put on a smile, I have to prepare <laughs> myself. <laughs> I have to watch my language. I have to watch my hands. And so I protect and calculate and assess my body environment in relationship to the transaction. It's fascinating to me, and I'm aware of, in listening to you talk, how it is normally compared to your experience of now transacting. So what I mean by that is if I think about my past experiences prior to learning and embodying transactional competence, the way that I approach a meeting, the way I approach all kinds of things was not from where are we in this transaction, not from which personality is talking now, not from which personality is the best person for where we are in the transaction now. It was helter-skelter. It was <laughs> it was often a free-for-all a free of different opinions and views and positioning. It sounds like the personality and transactional behavior model and the transaction cycle itself has provided an enormous amount of freedom for you to simply be 
you in the transactions in which you're engaged. Is, would you say that's accurate or anything else you want to say about that? Uh, that's absolutely accurate. And another word I would use would be appropriate. I enjoy not being a part of it. In fact, I love giving it up. It, it takes me out of it. I don't, I don't need to be responsible for that. Um, however, when, I, when something's happening that, that I need to put my two cents in, because I'm so calculated now about when I interact, I'm more of a resource for people. Before I wasn't a resource, I was just a pain. I was uh, the hard ass, I was the killer. And now I'm, I'm the resource and one of the pieces of the puzzle in, of this whole transaction is where are your resources, who are your resources, and can you be a resource for somebody, and how do you find resources for yourself? Again, being uh, that judge personality, you kind of tend to have a very small amount of resources around you. As I was thinking about the bigger picture of why this provides so much freedom for people, and again, it just isn't designed for that. It just happens to be this amazing uh, side effect. But one of the things that I can find, you're pointing to it now, is if we're teaching a variety of things. One, we're teaching personality and transactional approach. We're teaching a transaction cycle that has particular personalities and certain quadrants of that transaction. And we're also teaching people to get better at exchange, focus, and specialization. So they, they become very aware of the resource they are, where they should place themselves, and where they should stay out of certain parts of a transaction, or where they should stay out of certain parts of the marketplace. Anything else about that? Well, before I was involved with influence ecology in my practice in, in Honolulu, I was a performer. I had to be that performer person. And so I was trying to transact with people to create my practice as this bubbly kind of person, which didn't fit. and it, it, it didn't make sense to me how I could be that way and feel just so unsatisfied, even though I had a very successful practice. It was such hard work. And now understanding that my specialty is assessment, I speak in my practice uh, with my clients, with my, my, my interns, with the students, with people around me. I can speak in the assessment model because that's my offer. And I'm okay with that. I don't have to be the bubbly person. And I know that people are going to say no to me. And that's okay. I don't necessarily have to have you as a client or a patient or you have to like me, but this is who I am and I'm not going to be anything different. And the certainty with that and the level of freedom that you have to be able to accept a no is great. It's really good. Well, the transactional competence is designed to speed things up. It's designed to produce models that simplify all kinds of stuff and, and speed up the transactions that we're all involved with to get things done, make things move, get more effective. If you look back on your own journey about the cost of your behavior before you studied transactional competence, how did the way you behaved before cost you or cost others? The class was my inability to decide because as a judge, we're always in the past and we're looking to determine our future based upon past decisions, past emotions, past past whatever, basically. And so it, it keeps you in that forward movement. And so I, I got stuck a lot. My decision-making took so long that either the opportunity was gone 
or I had to pay more money because I waited too long. It's not that I wasn't spontaneous. Well, that's not true. I'm not spontaneous. <laughs> well, spontaneous to me is like three hours. You know, John, truly the, the, the cost is the impact of my of the people that I'm dealing with. Like Liz, poor Liz, having to deal with, with me not being able to make a decision. And then when I made a decision, it's like, oh my God, did I make the right decision? So it's the, it's the impact of the people who I'm making choices to. And even my own relationships with my friends and my family, the, the should I go? <laughs> should I go on this date? Should I go on this date? I don't know if I want to go on this date. And then when I make the decision to go on the date, it's like, oh, oh, maybe I shouldn't go on this date. Oh, my God. And so you're just constantly in consideration. Now my consideration is very short. Decision-making is far less troublesome. Financial decision making—I'm still getting my head around that. It's much better than it used to be. I'm—I'm I'm much more open to, to understanding my money situations now, and money not just being the monetary currency, but money as I'm currency. And so, my choices are very short. It takes a short time to deliberate. So, in terms of when people are naive to the cost of their own transactional behavior, so let's just say that if you're not aware of the transactional behavior, your personality, if you're not aware of the transaction itself, how do you find or how do you observe other people being high cost? I find that I have a bit less patience with people who are high cost to me um, because my time is valuable. That's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just that I, I, I have to manage myself with that because you can see the answers right there for them and they're not willing to see it or they're not capable of seeing it and then they have to deal with the consequence of their lack of choice or decision making. I think that's what I see the, the most is the people that struggle. I see myself in them that struggle to make the right choice or dwell on it. How have things improved for you in terms of your, your business, your accomplishments? What's happened over these last few years since you've participated? I was just a senior lecturer, and then I was given an opportunity to take a, a position called the Intern Mentor Manager, where I had 25 mentors, chiropractic mentors, that I was in charge of who helped the students in their practical application of chiropractic. And then just last week, I was given another opportunity to take another position, and now I am a chiropractic coach I will be in charge of remediation and that's huge for me because that's what's a relationship type of position where I have to be connected with those people that are students that are are not necessarily achieving the way they want to achieve I've also been asked to speak at many different places different situations different seminars where I've never would have had the ability to to speak in front of crowds of 25 to 100. Just last month, I was speaking in Sydney to the Sydney Basketball Association. It was 125 officials there looking at me, <laughs> speaking to them, and that was, that was like, oh my God. But I so enjoy it now because I, I have such dry humor. <laughs> I revel in my, my judginess. It is great. I don't have to be Drew. I don't have to be Kirkland. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be the performer. You get to be a judgy person. Well, that's really great. Makes me think about comedians, some of which are quite dry, some of which are 
I've never been in improv training, but I would imagine that some people have to learn first and foremost to be themselves, that perhaps what's funny about them is something quite natural to them. Uh, I don't know. Somebody probably will email me and say, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> but there are people who are quite dry or quite whatever the case. But mostly I'm really happy that for you, you've experienced as a judge, you, you got to come out of the closet as a judge. You got to embrace your judginess. <laughs> you got to make it count. You got to make it matter. And I think that's a, a great thing, especially in a world where you think you had to be like a performer or producer or some other personality. I'm, I'm glad that you found your expertise and your specialization being yourself. It's really great. Thank you. It's been a great learning and studying myself and being a part of this ecology. I like to call myself the gentle judge. That whole aim, gentle judge, makes a difference. It's really great. In terms of the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, can you say a little bit about that institution and its reputation? We are one of the top chiropractic colleges internationally. Our research department is, I would say, the top research department in chiropractic. We work with the neuroscience department at the University of Denmark and they bring their students over here to do a lot of our research. Our graduates are heavily recruited, I should say, heavily recruited to be a part of other practices. Yeah, we, we have outstanding students. You know, our mission is to graduate the world's best chiropractors. Our faculty, we have over 200 years of experience with our faculty and our members our mentors. Uh, we have students from New Zealand, Australia, America, Canada, South Africa, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Burma. They come because they want to be at our school. I'm so privileged and honored to be a part of the, this school. It's why I left America to be here. I miss America, definitely, but to have the opportunity to graduate the future chiropractors yeah, I love it. And thank God I had this opportunity to work with Influence Ecology, really, because I am such a better teacher for it. And in your role as a teacher, just tell us a little bit about your role and what kind of work you do with the students. I have two sides to what I do, two roles. I'm a senior lecturer, so I, I teach a lot about the clinical clinical aspects of chiropractic. And I also am in the practical application, so I mentor them in their requirements. They need to have 500 patient visits to, before they can graduate and pass through all these hoops. My job now is to help those students who are falling through the cracks so that they can graduate with the best of their ability. And I'm really honored to take that role because I love coaching and I want them to be the best that they can be. It's personal to me because I was dyslexic and because my teacher didn't pay attention to the fact that I didn't learn the way I was supposed to learn, I fell through the cracks. And I don't want anybody to have to do that. If I could stop just one person from not falling through the cracks and being the best that they can be in, in, the, in the mind and body that they are, then that's what I want to do. That's great. Well, Lisa, thank you so very much for spending time with us today. I love speaking with you, and thank you for your time. Thanks, John. I appreciate the time that you've given me to be able to say what I need to say. 
Studying transactional competence includes learning how to identify your own and others' personality, as well as how to speed up transactions by creating teams with the right personality in the right place within a coordinated transaction. In this Guru Talk, we listen in on a webinar where Kirkland Tibbles offers a review of personality and the benefit of putting the right personality in the right role. We're going to work specifically in an area of identifying personality and transactional behavior. And for those of you who are new, I invite you just to sit back and listen to the narrative that we are attempting to weave in how we as exchange animals, how we as folks who rely on and depend on and must transact with each other do so. And specifically, how we function in transactions as specific kinds of personalities, that is, holding certain characteristics that give us an advantage in certain roles as we attempt to transact. We assert that every transaction functions in a cycle, that reciprocal exchange, that series of exchanges that I mentioned to make up a transaction. But at some point, someone invents a transaction. At some point, we invite others to join us in that transaction. That is, that is a, an exchange in this series. We present our offers. We present certain ideas. We present opportunities to others, and we must present them to others, and they must be accepted in some way if we're going to function and transact with each other to satisfy our most important areas, our conditions of life. And after we presented those, at some point, we come to terms with each other about what that transaction would look like. And it doesn't matter if you're asking someone out on a date, planning date night with the spouse, trying to deal with the kid cleaning their room, or taking a company public. All transactions are invented. We invite people to participate. We present them in some way. We come to terms with the obligations of it, and then we fulfill on that in some way, hopefully effectively, hopefully efficiently, hopefully quickly and at low cost. But that's what we do in transactions. When we build them effectively, we move them quickly. There are going to be some metrics of satisfaction or results and consequences that are produced in every transaction, and that too is part of the series of exchanges. The fact that we must know how we're doing along the way, benchmarks and goals and so forth. And every transaction completes at some point. Every transaction reaches some point of completion. And it's important to know what those completions are, what they look like, and how best to set up that exchange in this series. And we, whether we know it or not, we are always assessing and inquiring into how our transactions are going how is the experience of this transaction as we look to reinvent and invent more from possibilities that exist? We look for a possibility to do more. We present them to more people. We come to terms with them. We fulfill them. We produce consequences and results. We complete those transactions and round and round and round it goes. Every day, all day long, in every area of our life, we are always transacting. We are a transactional creature. We are a critter of exchange. Now, in Influence Ecology, we have done some work to lay on top of that series of exchanges some other distinctions, some other principles, some other work. And tonight, we're going to suggest to you 
that this series of exchanges can get grouped in certain ways. We can categorize those series in certain ways, and we will start to point to the fact that some human beings are better suited for one series that's lumped together than they are another series that would be lumped together. We've named these categories based on particular personalities, and those four personalities are inventor, performer, producer, and judge. And each of these personalities, each one of these personalities, an inventor, a performer, producer, and judge, carry certain kinds of behavioral characteristics. They carry certain kinds of innate concerns. They concern themselves with different things in every transaction. And hopefully tonight you'll be able to hear yourself and others with whom you engage on a daily basis as we go through some of those characteristics. One other thing I will point out is that our transactional personalities are grounded in the world of philosophy. We actually point our personality and transactional behavior studies towards specific personalities, and you can hear them in the characteristics we're about to go through. Just as a quick summary, I invite you to consider that an inventor is a highly idealistic and subjective personality. This is a kind of person who sees a big future. They live in their mind, and anything and everything that the mind can conceive and believe, an inventor thinks they could achieve it if they can see it in their mind. They, they subscribe to philosophies that give the primacy of consciousness, the fact that they can think it. John, I'll, I'll be picking on you tonight as my key inventor tonight at Influence Ecology, <laughs> and I'll be using the personalities here at Influence Ecology that we know so well in describing and giving examples of these personalities. I, in fact, fall an, in a kind of constructivist philosophy. I tend to think that as long as people are involved, anything is possible. Now, I don't believe everything we think is possible. I simply don't subscribe to that philosophy, but I do believe that if the right people are in the right place and they are, they are all of a mind of the same narrative, there is very little that we cannot achieve together. And you can hear a kind of constructivist narrative in that. Performers are very people-oriented, and we believe that with the right people in the right places, we can construct any narrative to move mountains. And that's a performer. You can hear a kind of relationship orientation, narrative-based kind of philosophy in the world of a performer. Then there's the producer, who is the most objective, black and white, things are what they are, they're not what they're not, rocks are hard, water's wet kind of personality. These are very objective personalities. These are people who believe that there is a world that does exist, whether human beings are in it or not. There's an entire movement right now that's afoot, especially in the West, over object-oriented objectivism. That's a, a philosophic movement that's underway, and this philosophy rests on the primacy of existence. The primacy of existence. Things do exist. They are what they are. They're not what they're not. And this personality is critical in this series of exchanges that we have placed at this point in the transaction cycle. And then finally, we have the skeptical personality, the skeptical 
the fact-based, past-based personality that tends to need and want lots and lots and lots of evidence to prove the case. This personality does not tend to hang out much in idealism. And in fact, this personality can often get a really bad rap because they can be somewhat critical and in many cases highly confrontational because they demand proof. They are simply skeptical. They are simply skeptical. And recognizing that personality for what that personality brings to a transaction is life-altering for many of us who used to relate to these personalities as negative, and now we relate to them as critical, something that is important. And I mean that term in two ways, critical to the transaction and critical as a personality. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes or any place you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes, and let us know what you think. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guests for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Episode producer, editor, and music supervisor is Jason Kelly. Podcast, copy, and show notes, editing, and links by Carol Gregory.